Situated in northern Italy is a church called Holy Mary of Grace. I'm not going to bother with the Italian pronunciation. Uh, there it is. And you actually probably know about this church without knowing about it because inside, on the wall, at the end of the dining area, is one of the world's most recognizable paintings. It is the weathered, worn, and apparently largely damaged work of Leonardo da Vinci called The Last Supper. And you guys have probably all seen the painting, I'm sure. Da Vinci has immortalized the specific moment in which, if you know the story, Jesus predicts that one of his disciples will betray him. And aghast at the news, the 12 apostles begin to panic and to argue about whom will be the betrayer. And da Vinci's mural, the composition, the characters, the shapes, is so instantly recognizable that it's obviously the subject of endless parodies. Uh, here's a few I looked up this week. There's breakfast cereal. Um, look at these guys. It looks like someone's gone through the trouble to actually sculpt them as well, not just a painting. Look at Boo Berry. Do you guys remember Boo Berry to Captain Crunch's <laughs> his right? Anyway, uh, there's also technological parodies of The Last Supper. Remember the iPod Classic? Those are great. Um, and this is my personal favorite. It's The Last Supper of 80s genre films with E.T. acting as the uh, Jesus character in this equation. So you can't possibly fit enough of them, so you've got the batteries not included, robots just flying around the scene. And Anyway, it's great. Um, and just as recognizable as the mural itself, The Last Supper, is obviously the name, The Last Supper. And this is, of course, appropriate in a certain sense. After all, Jesus said himself that the Passover meal, which is what they were eating, it would be the last one he would share with his friends before he actually came back to repair all that was wrong in the world. But in another sense, this painting depicts an important first in the movement of Jesus, something that began on the evening depicted in da Vinci's painting and something that actually proliferated alongside the growth of Christianity itself, and that is the ancient practice of communion or the Lord's Supper, which is actually here, the First Supper. But like most things that have actually carried on throughout the history of the church, there have been ups and downs and wrongs and rights and success and failure. All summer long, we've actually been in this practice, this ancient spiritual discipline of eating and drinking, rediscovering all that that means for the church. So we've talked about eating with your neighbors, eating with people who don't follow Jesus. We talked about something one writer calls radically ordinary hospitality, opening your home and your dinner table to other people. We talked about eating together as a community, the idea of church around a table, the lost art of celebration. And tonight we're going to begin to unpack the final dimension of this practice, which is eating and drinking with God. So let's read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and this is about a particular church in the first century that got communion wrong, so there's a lot we can learn from it. Look at chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Okay, pause for a second. Now in context, remember this is actually a letter. More specifically, it's a letter drafted by an, an apprentice of Jesus called Paul. In the New Testament, Paul is this fascinating character who, after this incredible encounter with Jesus, travels around the ancient Mediterranean telling other people about this Jesus guy that he met and planting churches along the way. And one such church that Paul planted is in a city called Corinth. And we don't have time for a detailed history of the city, but suffice it to say, Cor Corinth was a wild place. In fact, historians argue that first century Corinth makes Las Vegas look like it belongs in the conservative 
Bible Belt. It was nuts. There were temple prostitutes and wild orgies and politicians who doubled as pederasts, those grown men who live with uh, small boy sexual partners, and all of that was the social norm in Corinth. And Paul shows up in that city. He talks about Jesus. Some people come to faith in Jesus, and a church is planted right in the middle of the city. Really wild stuff. So later, Paul's actually moved on to his next missionary venture, but he keeps in touch with the church in Corinth, and he writes them letters of encouragement and correction, lots of dense theological stuff. It's fascinating. So let's get back to the letter. Verse 17. In the following directives, meaning everything I'm about to tell you, I have no praise for you, for your meetings, your church gatherings, do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. All right, let's pause for a second and take a closer look. First century Corinth was what we call a stratified society, meaning the rich people are on top of the food chain, so to speak, and below them were the poor. Men were above women, masters above slaves, Roman citizens above non-citizens, stratified society. And it was famous for its feasts, which was somewhat normative in the Greco-Roman world. See, um, people from many disparate walks of life would uh, often get together and eat in the home of a wealthy person. This was kind of part and parcel of life in the Roman world. And in the home of the wealthy person, there stood a table called a triclinium, which is a really cool sci-fi sounding word. And the triclinium would sit about 10 to 12, or 10 to 20, rather, rich individuals. Now, beyond the triclinium was an open courtyard or an atrium at which sat about 50 or 60 members of the working class. It was way more crowded, and it was populated by the poor, by slaves, and so on. So the rich got served the choice selections of a feast, and in the atrium, they got whatever else. And the setup was such that the atrium's was sat in plain view of the triclinium. We're up here, you're down there, this is the way that it is, don't forget it, deal with it. You know, it's kind of like the same premise if you ever board a plane and you're made to squeeze yourself down this narrow cabin with bags in front of you like this, passing the prissy passengers in the first class on your way to the back, you know, like to be crammed into a cell, and you just have to look at these fancy buttheads that have already been boarded, and they're essentially in king-size beds, you know, and they've got these wine goblets in their hands, and uh, there's like stewardesses massaging their feet and stuff like that. <laughs> and then you eventually arrive at, you know, seat 68B or whatever it is, and this means that you have to go, oh, sorry, I'm that guy, because the people thought they were going to be by themselves, but no, now they have to cram themselves back into the aisle and watch as you put on the theatrical performance of trying to close that thing and fit your bag in there, and, um, and then you get to uh, do this contortionist thing where you fold your feet and your person into this stifling prison of misery for the next six hours where you can't move. It's, I hate air travel. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> It's absolutely miserable. And uh, if the idea of, like, a, that's kind of a stratified society thing. The idea of a deliberately stratified society sounds kind of weird to us, even in the plain analogy I, I, I realize, and maybe even offensive. But remember, we actually still continue to live the same way, even in the modernized Western world. Many Americans, even disciples of Jesus, 
have already learned at some point that billions of people across the globe are starving to, starving to death or they live on less than $2 a day or they're sold into slavery to sew our jeans and sneakers. And a, and a tiny minority of us are moved to action. We're like, oh man, we should do something about that. But the majority of people go, man, dang, that's rough. But hey, jeans, sneakers, and go about our lives as usual. We're on top, they're down there, deal with it. That's the way that it is. Now, all that to say, this dichotomy of the rich and the poor is the norm for Corinth, but in Paul's letter, we see that it's begun to poison the church itself, and this should not be. Specifically, it's actually crept into the practice of the Lord's Supper. The rich are inside with all the food, because traditionally it was a whole meal, not just the bread and the cracker. We'll get to that next week. Um, but they're inside with all the food. The poor people are outside scrapping for the leftovers. Some churchgoers are like eating way more than they need. They're getting drunk. They leave full and happy while the others are act outside actually starving to death. So naturally, this guy Paul is ticked. The, this sacred thing is being treated like any other indulgent, stratified feast in Corinth. So to correct them, Paul has to remind the church in Corinth where the Lord's Supper came from and what it means. Let's go on. Verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, meaning this is something they've already heard through oral tradition. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, interestingly, we actually think this letter predates the writing of the Gospels, making this the very first story written down about Jesus in the New Testament. And it's about the Lord's Supper. Now, next week, we'll talk more about communion and how it's changed down throughout church history from a big meal to, a, you know, the cracker and juice thing. But for right now... Here's a bit of background to make sense of this text. In the story of the Bible, there is a Jewish tradition uh, central to the history of Israel, and it's called Passover. In it, Jews look backward to the story of Exodus in the Hebrew Scriptures, you probably see in the cartoon or whatever, in which God rescued the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt, but they also look forward to a time when God's promised king or Messiah would arrive and rescue Israel all over again. And at the center of the Passover meal, if you know the story, was a lamb. The lamb was originally offered as a sacrifice, and in the Exodus story, the Jewish people covered their doors with the lamb's blood so that God would rescue those inside the house from death. Now, in the story of the Last Supper, Jesus is actually at the Passover meal, meaning the meal where they sit down, they remember, they look forward, and he's there with his friends, his disciples. And here, just before Jesus goes to the cross to be executed, he speaks to his disciples, and he actually reinterprets the meaning of the Passover feast. See, at the beginning of the Passover meal was the bread. So one person would stand up and they would say, this is the bread of the affliction. And Jesus stands up with the bread and he says, this bread is my body. And at the end of the meal, someone would stand up with a cup of wine that they called the cup of blessing. And it was to look forward to a coming day of the Messiah. But Jesus stands up at the end of the meal with the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. It is here. 
Jesus is telling his disciples, I am the new Passover lamb. I am the long-awaited Messiah. My sacrifice is going to rescue Israel and the whole world all over again. And then he actually commands his disciples to keep doing this thing, the Lord's Supper. Do it regularly, rhythmically, and remember Jesus. Remember his broken body, his spilled blood, the way he rescued us from the evil one. Now, back to Paul, who is reminding the church in Corinth of what they've already been told once, what they already know to some extent. He's saying, you guys act like you don't even remember what you're doing or why. If you did, you wouldn't be acting this way. How on earth can you take a tradition meant to remind us of the way that God gives his life away to others and make it an occasion to ignore the people that are in need in your own community? You're getting fat and drunk while people around you starve to death. This is insane. So now he's going to correct them. Look down at verse 27. So then, Paul says to the church in Corinth, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the, blo- the body and blood of the Lord. Now, uh, don't misunderstand this text. Paul's not saying that one must be quote-unquote, worthy in order to take communion. This interpretation would be absolutely absurd. The whole point of communion is that you're not worthy, and yet God in Jesus has come to rescue unworthy people. The invitation of Jesus, if you know, is come, follow me. It's not, hey, get tidied up, get worthy first, and then you can come follow me. So Paul isn't talking about the worthiness that you must exhibit before taking communion. He's talking about giving worth, ascribing worth to the act of communion itself. In other words, this is serious. You need to take it really seriously. It's important. Uh, Recently, I was giving Cam a hard time about watching the movie A Quiet Place in an Unworthy Environment. Some movies, I think, can only be experienced properly in a movie theater or in a theater-like atmosphere. So I told him, you've you've experienced this movie in an unworthy manner, and you have sinned against, (laughs) against movies themselves. And I wasn't talking about him being unworthy to watch the movie. I was talking about respect for the sacred space of movie going. And believe it or not, communion is actually more serious than that. And just look at uh, down at verse 28. He goes on, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Now, all of this begs the question, what's the big hubbub about communion? And we get that communion matters. I I bet very few of us would say, who cares? It doesn't matter. But it matters this much. It's this serious. And then you read the New Testament and you track the development of the early church and you begin to see that the breaking of bread, which is a euphemism for communion, was the centerpiece of the thing we still know as the church gathering from the very beginning and on down throughout church history. And really, Though the way we gather together for church has evolved over the centuries quite a bit, there's still a tremendous amount of similarity to the very beginning of the church. There's always been singing, for example. There's always been scripture reading and preaching and greetings and community and giving and just hanging out. There's been lessons and people coming to faith and people being healed, prophecy, words of knowledge, eating together. Does any of that sound familiar? It's the same stuff we still do every single week. And at the heart of all that was the Lord's Supper the centerpiece of the gathering. Now, if you've been around the modern church for more than a minute, you've probably noticed that communion isn't always the central aspect of the gathering. Often, depending on your background and your tradition, it may be treated as kind of an aside or something you do irregularly or whatever. And we'll talk about how that happened and what we plan to do about it in the practices next week. But before we end this evening, I have just a few thoughts for us to consider tonight going forward with this whole thing of communion. 
When you read 1 Corinthians, it actually presents several dimensions of this thing we call communion in the form of a rebuke, sure, but there's a ton we can learn from it. The first one is obvious, if you're taking notes, it's that communion is looking backward. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 24, Paul quotes Jesus as saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Or in other words, do this and remember me. So in communion, we're actually remembering the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus. And this is likely how most people would answer a question about the purpose of communion if you were to ask them, oh, it's, you know, to remember Jesus, but stop and consider something for a moment. What does it actually mean to remember the sacrifice of Jesus? We don't have time for an in-depth discussion around the theologically dense idea of what we call the atonement, but for brevity's sake, let's put things really simply. The story of the Bible teaches that humanity is broken, crooked, bent out of shape, hell-bent, on self-destruction. And in order to save us from destruction, God embraced the pain of humanity in Jesus. Jesus suffers and dies so that we can be free from the finality of death. And now this functional aspect of communion begins to make a tremendous amount of sense. If you spent virtually any time around the church at all, you've likely been hearing about Jesus' death on the cross for quite a while now. Heck, even my four-year-old son can articulate some ideas about the cross. That's not bad, that's good, but familiarity can often breed disinterest and apathy and forgetfulness. Um, just the other day in conversation, a Abby and I were remembering something unrelated, and over the course of the conversation, she reminded me of something amazing. I had forgotten that um, a few years ago, my dad had died, and it was this chaotic thing, and, and we realized that we didn't have enough money for plane tickets to fly to Georgia where the funeral was going to be. So a good friend of mine came along, and he bought plane tickets for us, uh, several of us, to fly to Georgia and be there with the family. And it had happened in this kind of chaotic time, and I thought about it a lot then, and then it kind of like, you know, it was just part of the story. And then suddenly I was remembering it going, man, that's incredible. What a kind, generous thing that friend did for us. And I can't keep that in my mind all the time. It takes reminding, and then when I remember, I'm actually filled with gratitude. So how brilliant then that by Jesus' design, we have built into our recurring rhythmic gathering space a place to stop and remember the sacrifice of Jesus, because that's really important. But there's also a looking forward that happens in communion. Verse 26 says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, meaning an expectation of the future is built into communion. Je Jesus' work on the cross did something, and as a result of his death, burial, and resurrection, we are awaiting a coming day when death itself will be no more and when everything wrong will be made right, or as my four-year-old puts it, when Jesus makes the whole world better. Jesus' instruction was far broader than to remember the cross only. Remember, at that time, the disciples didn't even know exactly what was about to happen. In fact, the classic line that gets quoted all the time that's on the bottom of the paintings and everything is, do this in remembrance of what? Me, meaning remember Jesus himself. The cross, yes, absolutely, but more than that, the resurrection, the renewal of all things, the person of Jesus. So we look to the past, we look to the future, but we're also looking inward as well. Verse 28 reads, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. So in the sacred space of communion, as you set your mind on the past and you look forward to the future and to the person of Jesus, you're supposed to ask yourself, 
what in me is out of sync with all this? What in me is not living in awareness of what Jesus has done, of what Jesus is going to do, and who Jesus is, the things that Jesus taught, who I am as a result of all that? Have I failed to remember Jesus well? So you examine yourself, you ask God, you wait, and you listen, and then you pray, and you repent, or you go to the prayer team, or you have a conversation, you make a phone call, you change something, you do something, whatever it is, you act on that internal look. So you look backward, you look forward, you look inward. But in communion, you're actually also looking all around you. In other words, you're looking at one another. Throughout the New Testament, from the very first Lord's Supper on, down throughout church history, communion has always been done together. And we get that to a certain extent, but think about it for a second. Everything I've been saying up until now can all sound terribly insular. You know, your own private moment to remember and to ponder and to examine yourself. It's just for you. And all that's fine. But all of those things are also about the community of God's people. Discipleship to Jesus doesn't exist apart from community with other disciples of Jesus. So when you discover something in you is out of sync with the truth, it will always have to do with other people, relationships with God and with other people. And there are areas in your life when you'll realize, oh, there's some places where I've let anger take hold or dishonesty or bitterness or discord or relationships have been fractured and I need to do something about that. I've, I've, maybe I've failed to be generous or maybe I've failed to remember the poor or the needy in my own community. Maybe I've not loved my enemy the way that I should, whatever it might be. Remember, there's a, there's a reason that Jesus' entire Sermon on the Mount has to do with right relationships. And we've talked about this at length all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the forgiveness practice that we did a few months ago. But in the same way that communion is like a scheduled time to remember, it's also kind of re a recurring rhythmic space to examine yourself in the context of a family and the relationships therein. And finally, communion is an outward gesture as well. It's not just something that happens on the inside. Think back to that language. You proclaim the Lord's death until he returns, meaning communion itself is a proclamation. I love that language. It's not just a quiet moment that you experience privately. It's an action. It's something that you do outwardly as well. And this is important because you are, in the story of the scriptures, a holistic being. You're not just a floating consciousness in space. You are more than just a brain or a soul only. You are a mind, a soul, a body, and you, as a disciple of Jesus, exist in a context of community and relationships. So why do we, for example, use our vocal cords to sing during worship? Why not just sit there and think the lyrics? Why do many of us lift our hands during worship or dance rather than stand stoically? Because worship should be audible, it should be tactile, it should be alive. So we respond not just with our hearts, <coughs> pardon me, not just with our hearts and minds sitting there thinking, but with our vocal cords and our hands and our bodies, with our whole selves, in other words. And we do this in part for our own benefit. It changes something in us to do that. We do it for the communal experience of worship, and that's something that it is. We do it to contribute to an energy and an enthusiasm in the room, which I think is important. But we also do all of this, I would actually argue there's a spiritual dimension to it as well, as a gesture of rebellion against the spiritual forces of evil. Um, Satan and demons cannot, we don't think, read minds, but they can hear voices, and they can see hands lifted, and they can see 
the bread and the cup raised by some 80 people in a small hot sanctuary on a Sunday night. And that is an act of rebelling against the principalities and powers the scriptures call them to say, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And these things are built into this ancient sacred practice of the bread and the cup, all into that simple command to do this and remember me. And that's actually easier said than done. Remembering is a difficult thing. Fixed in our hearts is a deep-seated forgetfulness. We, as disciples of Jesus, have been grafted into God's story. Now we are God's own people, his children. There are things that God has done for us, things that God says are true of us. There's a future that God speaks over us, and we forget. We forget that God declares us to be blameless and innocent, and so we live beneath the heavy burden of guilt and shame. We forget the truth that sets us free, so we live believing lies that keep us in bondage. We forget that God has rescued us, and so we live in fear of tomorrow. We forget that God has forgiven us, and we live as those unwilling to forgive other people. We forget what God promises of the future, so we languish in despair when all seems lost in the present. And this forgetfulness has been tragically lodged in the heart of God's people for thousands of years, reaching backward into the Garden of Eden in which God tells his very first image bearers, eat this and you will die, only to find that they've been led astray by a whispering snake of all things who says, did God really say that you would die? Back in our practice on forgiveness, we read this from L. Gregory Jones. The rich forget the poor. Adulterers forget their spouses. The proud forget their place. And disciples forget their master. Theology teaches us that our memory is compromised from the start. That is to say, remembering and forgetting is not simply a matter of choice. They are capacities within us that need to be redeemed together with the whole creation. Now, Communion is not a one-stop cure for all that, for our collective forgetfulness, but it is a place where we, as a family, deliberately make space to remember and to take that remembering very seriously. We all together as one, as a community, as a family, as a church, draw our attention, our hearts, and our minds to the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, to the person of Jesus, to his life, his teachings, his words, and then we look inside for incongruence, where the things that we remember to be true of Jesus don't click into place with who we are in that moment, that day, that week, that season of our lives. And then we do something about it, because there should be congruence there. We look forward to a day when Jesus will make everything new. We remember, yes, that is happening. That's what we believe. We all believe it together. I do not have to languish in despair in the here and now. And we feel the presence of other people all around us. We remember that there's a togetherness of the church. The togetherness of church costs something. So we remember what it costs and what it takes and also what it gives. And together, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.